Amen. So I mentioned earlier that we are wrapping up this series, Lies Christians Believe. Uh, we'll cover various lies, and today we want to wrap up with this one last lie. The lie is simply this, that perhaps at times we feel like there are people that, we, that will never change. And somehow in our brain, in our hearts, we, feel, we chalk it up to all, oh, this person will never change. It might be a spouse um, uh, that you got married to and you're, you thought that by getting married, I'm not speaking about my own spouse, okay? <laughs> but uh, the thinking that you will change them. But for whatever reason, you can get married 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and yet they never change the way that you wanted them to be changed. Uh, for some of us, maybe just a, an annoying friend who likes to dine and dash, whoever jet uh, right before the bill comes. And you're always like, how come this person never changed? Maybe it can be for some of us, a family member who have these annoying habits, never put the seat back down. Uh, maybe they always uh, uh, budge in into your room and mess up your room. Uh, for some of us, maybe maybe a bigger picture. We, we're praying for change in a country. We see uh, dictators and, and, and these evil kings and, and, and um state officials that are corrupting people and in our hearts we genuinely want to see them them to be changed so that people can be changed and one of the greatest lies that satan put in our hearts oftentimes to discourage us as follow jesus christ is simply that people can never will never ever change i don't know who it is in your blank right there it might be an enemy it might be someone you love someone you like to be with. It might be someone that you resent. And regardless who that person may be on that blank, God tells us that he is more than able to change that person. Earlier today, Anthony read this beautiful story from Acts chapter 9. In some ways, a turning point in the book of Acts in the early church where Jesus had been risen from the dead, went back up to the Father, and then he sent his disciples out among the lost. And they are doing a great job. Acts chapter 2, people in Jerusalem being saved. The Jews are coming to know Jesus. And yet that was not the final part of the mission. Acts chapter 1 tells us actually the beginning. The disciples were to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And part of the ends of the earth had to do with people who are beyond Jews. And coming in into chapter 9, the story that Anthony read for us, we, see, we saw that there are persecution and seeing that there are fruit being, being bore for, for, for reaching out. And yet God was in the process of changing someone's life. Someone whom nobody thought could ever be changed. To change his life in such a drastic way that this man will one day pen two-thirds of the New Testament. That this man will one day bring the gospel to the Gentiles. That in Acts chapter 19, we will read in the future that, that one day this man who, who ever, whom everyone thought would never ever change to become a Christian, become a follower of Jesus, this person will bring the gospel in just two years, bring, bring the gospel to Ephesus, the Asian minor, to, that everyone will have a chance to hear this gospel, that this man will catalyze a movement beyond the Jews and to the Gentiles and one day testify before the king. And this man that we're going to look at today is by a guy named, by the name Saul, more commonly known as Paul. 
So if you have your Bible, hopefully you have it in front of you. I've not opened it up to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, Anthony had read it for us. Here's a story of a, of a change, a drastic transformation of a man whom everyone thought could never happen. And yet God miraculously brought forth change in this person. But just to let you know a little bit as you turn to the Bible, just to give us some reminder or, or, or information about Saul or Paul, Saul was raised as a Pharisee. He was one of those spiritual leaders among the Jews. He has authority. He has education. We knew from other parts of the scripture that he was well-educated, trained under a very uh, prestigious um, Pharisee, a Pharisee school, learned under someone, his one of his mentors, one of the best Pharisees there was at the time. So Saul was well-versed in, in the Old Testament. He's well-versed in Judaism. He is smart. He's a go-getter. He's a type A person. But worse yet, we know that Saul is also the guy who is upfront persecuting, executing those who follow Jesus. Because in Acts chapter 8, we saw in Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says, Saul approved of the execution of, of, um, of these believers, of Stephen. For, um, and, and then went on and says, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And people, Christians, were scattered everywhere in Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so even in where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 9, even in the beginning scene of this story, Saul was still chasing after believers. Look at what it says, Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, meaning Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Paul or Saul has one objective in his life. It was to go and bring in, uh, to annihilate anyone who's following Jesus. So what made this murderer becoming Christian? What made, what caused this one's enemy of the faith become someone who's willing to lay down his life for this faith? What brought a man who would, who has a one job to do is to arrest and kill every Christian there is in the community, in the, in the area. Going through a transformation, becoming one who will be executed, who will be persecuted for the Jesus that he once opposed. And the answer is simply this. God. See, every change, every change in a person's life it initiated is initiated by God. In this fairy story, we see Saul who is still breathing threats about uh, 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 on people's lives. All the while, God initiated this change in him. You see, every change are involved in three components. You're taking notes that you can write this down. It's always first initiated by God because God is in the business of changing lives. God is the business of changing lives. God is in the, God is in the transformational business. He is in the business of changing lives back then. He's in the business of changing lives today. God was the one who initiated change for Saul. Look at verse 3 here. You're following along with me. Verse 3 says, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, meaning Saul. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
in verse 5, and, and Saul says this, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. You see, right before Saul even realized that he needed to change his life, he needed to experience transformation that God was about to bring forth. God was the one who approached him, show up in a vision to him. Show him in a vision, show him that you are the one who's persecuting me. You are the one who's persecuting my church. And oftentimes the people that whom we want to see changing, they have no idea they needed to change. In fact, the people who are who 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 needed to be changed oftentimes are like like people who have bad breath. They are the last one to know. Everyone knows that they need to be changed except that person. And in the same way, God, through uh, a vision, confronted, initiated the change. So one of the things we need we must remember is that God is the one who can change people, not us, not ourselves, not any other. God must be the one who initiated that change. And we see here that God had a plan. God is the king. God is our savior. God is sovereign. God sees a bigger picture. While we look at the story, we're like, wait, why did God want to change him, change Paul? I think one of the, there are several reasons. It doesn't say explicitly what the reason might be, but, but there are several reasons, hints here, we see why God changed them. One of the first reasons is simply because God has mercy on his own people. Remember, Paul was along the, Saul was along the, along many other people at the, in the Jewish community, wanted to persecute these new Christians, these people who are following Jesus Christ. You see, God, I love the way God, uh, Jesus spoke to Saul. He says this, why are you also, why are you persecuting me? See, God, what Jesus himself actually was raised from the dead. He's sitting in the right hand of the Father. He was not literally being persecuted, but it's his people who are being persecuted. And it was to God that much of a personal thing that when his people get persecuted, it is as if he himself was being persecuted. And as such, God showed mercy and wanted to change Paul so that his people would be relieved of such persecution. But we know that God was not completely taking the persecution away. He's taking one of the big player away who is who initiating these persecution. But God is not completely taking it away because the rest of the book of Acts would continue to see persecution. So certainly God wants to bless his church and alleviate some of the things that they're going through. And so that might be one reason why God wanted to, to change Paul so that his church, his followers would be alleviated with some of their suffering. But I think there's another reason why. See, most of us, when we think of change, we think of ourselves. That we ask God to change ourselves or ask God to change somebody else because we think it would be best for that person. And most of the time, it is true. But you see, God was such a big God. He doesn't just do things for people alone. Because later on in the story, we saw God specifically through Ananias, told Ananias the reason by which God wanted to change Saul's life. Notice what it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Here, God gave Saul the vision to go to Damascus. And Saul was blind and he was being led to Damascus. And all the while, God gave another vision to a Christian named Ananias. And Ananias got this vision from God to meet Paul in Damascus. And God gave Ananias the reason why 
And now I just need to show up to this random person named Saul, the one who's breathing threat among Christians. And notice what it says in verse 15. Verse 15, Jesus said this, the Lord said to him, go for Saul. He, Saul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Why did God go through all this to change Saul to become Paul, to bring this murder of the faith, to become, a, uh, become someone who is, who is a, a proclaimer of the faith? Why did God change Saul to become Paul? Well, yes, certainly God wanted him to experience salvation, to find Jesus himself. But here's a bigger picture. You see, God has a bigger purpose because God wanted to use this man, Saul, to become a chosen instrument for his own name. God wanted to use Saul to make his own name great so that he can bring the gospel to the Gentiles, so they can bring the gospel to the Jews, so they can bring the gospel even, in verse 15 says what, to the kings. You see, God was never just about us. God never just changed us for us. That, that is the byproduct, the benefit of changing us. But ultimately, God is for his own glory. God is for himself. And not in an egotistical way, because when, just like a, a famous pastor, John Piper, once said this, we are most satisfied when God is most glorified. So when God glorifies himself, and when we see God glorified, when we, when we see that happening, we ourselves will be most satisfied by God. You see, God initiated change for Saul. It's not just to, to spare his own people from persecution. That might be one reason. It is not only to spare Saul so that he can go to heaven. Yes, that also is a benefit. But ultimately, God wants to make his name great in all the nations, his glory to be known on earth. That has always been the purpose of God here on earth from the moment when sin entered into the world. God is in the process of bringing kingdom of heaven into earth. And he wants to change people's life and use people for that. Now we must ask ourselves, like, so what does that have to do with us? So when I think one of the encouragement we can find is this, that when God initiates change and God wants to change people for his own purpose, that means that sometimes we don't see the change happen right away. But we can trust that this big God who has a big plan is doing something even when we don't see it, when we can't feel it. That when we pray for God, when we pray for others, we don't see immediate change. We can trust that God is still at work. It makes me think of in Exodus chapter 3 where the Israelites were crying out under the slavery, the oppression by the Egyptians. Here, Here they're crying years upon years, decades upon decades. And it is as if God inherited them. And yet all along God has this magnificent redemptive plan for his own people, but also for his own glory. And at the right time, God chose to change a man named Moses to bring forth that plan. Exodus chapter 3, God speaking, and says, Now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you, Moses, to Pharaoh, that you might bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. 
You see, God have heard, God have seen. It wasn't that God was mean and didn't want to do anything, but God in his sovereignty, in his bigness, he is so in control that sometimes he allows oppressions to happen and bad things to happen, but yet God had a plan. God, in his right time, he bring forth the right person to bring the right change so that his people could be released, so that the glory of God may be displayed even to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, the neighboring countries. And in the same way, God is doing that. So don't ever give up. Don't ever lose heart when things are not changing. In your life, in somebody else's life, you're praying for years and years. And you say, God, why don't you do anything? Maybe perhaps God has been doing something. And yet we don't see it. So don't ever give up in trusting in God because God has a plan. God knows what he's doing. I believe this is also the reason why throughout the book of Psalms, various psalmists littered these beautiful psalms reminding us the importance of waiting upon the Lord. Look at what David says, for the evildoers shall be cut off. Focus, future tense, shall be cut off. That means they are not cut off, yes. And yet those who wait for the Lord presently shall future inherit the land. One of the marker, great markers of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is people who wait upon the Lord. Not waiting passively, but waiting actively. Continue to praying in faith. Continue to intercede. Continue to trust actively in the Lord and not letting go of God. Look at Psalm 130. It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hold my soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. You see, we want to see change in people's lives. We want to see change in our own lives. And at times it can get discouraging because look at this picture here is a watchman who is sitting at the gate throughout the night, waiting, looking, watching, waiting for the morning to come. And that today, some of us are living in that darkness. We're living at that two o'clock in the morning while it's still dark and we're waiting, wondering if morning would ever come. But we know that morning always, always comes. And God in his own timing bring forth change. But what we need to do is we must wait on the Lord. We must, we must anchor our hope in his word. Not just saying that we wait for it, but that my soul needs to wait for the Lord. See, change happens when God initiated and his right timing. God knows what he's doing. So don't be discouraged. Don't let go. Too soon because the morning was just around the corner. Maybe you're in the nighttime. You're wondering if it ever would change with the people, whatever. If my parents would ever come to know the Lord, if my best friend would ever come to the Lord, wait upon the Lord, wait actively upon the Lord, hope in the Lord. Trust that God can do the change. God can bring forth the change. Hopefully that's just something that will encourage us as we look at bigness of God, that God can change Saul to Paul. He can certainly change whoever in your life that you're praying for change to come. But not only does God initiate change, but we also see that God used, called the, people, the person to be changed to respond to him. There's three elements in the change that God at first initiated, yes, but the person himself, him or herself must respond to God as well. You see, when we look back in the story, 
Saul did not just ignore that dream. Saul did not just pretend that it was a bad vision. He had some bad sushi and then his stomach ache and it's just a bad food poisoning night with these bad night, uh, nightmare in his heart. No. Saul took it seriously. Notice his response once this vision come into him. He says this verse 4, going back early in the story. After, after he saw this light of heaven shone around him, he says this, he fell to the ground, verse 4. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he said this, who are you, Lord? The word Lord simply means master. Remember, Saul was the was the was a pioneer. He's a leader. He's an educated person. He will bow to nobody. And yet, when this vision comes to mind, he he bowed down, fall to the ground, as if he saw God Himself, and he addressed this voice, "Master, Lord." And then God gave him an instruction. He says this in verse six: "Rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do." And the man who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one, Saul rose from the ground, uh, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So these people around him led him by the hand, brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Here we see a response of surrendering in humility. Saul could have said, oh, I know a doctor that can break, help me with my blindness. Or he can be stubborn and be private. Okay, you want me to go to, go to Damascus? I'm going to go by myself with my eyes, even though my eyes are blinded. I'm going to figure out my way to go. And yet we see here, Saul humbled himself because of this, this glimpse of who God is. He realized something needed to be changed in his life. So he responded with surrendering and humility. He bowed down. He called God, God. He was led. He was so helpless. He needed to be led by these people around him into the city. Now, we don't know why he couldn't eat. He couldn't drink. But whatever it is, we know he is in a very, very humble, weak position. And surrender and humility are often the fertilizer by which that God brings about his change in someone's life. You see, Paul needed to respond with surrender and humility. Those are the fertilizers to bring forth God-sized change in someone's life. See, God can initiate the change, but if the person himself or herself does not respond in humility and surrender like Paul, that person would never experience change. Those are the fertilizers that grow a person just like it will grow a plant. But you know what fertilizer is like, right? They stink. They smell. They feel, they smell terrible. But we also know that fertilizer works. You ever driven by someone's backyard that fertilizer? It is the worst thing in the world. In the same way, surrender humility to us, it comes across as the worst thing in the world to lower ourselves, to feel weak, to feel humble, to feel like we're out of control. And yet that very thing is what's going to cause the change in our lives in somebody else's life. But here's the problem. We are adverse to surrender humility, isn't it? We are that way. Our friends are that way. Our families that way. 
I think as human beings, we do not like to feel surrendered and humbled and weak. And so while we might look at the person and say that person would never change, the reality is that our job is not to change them ourselves. Our job is to pray for them, to surrender, and to become humble enough that God can bring forth the change in their lives. I know at times it feels so helpless looking at someone that you know that person needed to be changed. And we feel so helpless in our job, in our role, Perhaps simply is to pray in, pray for that person, to intercede for that person, and God will change their heart. So that they will have a small moment that they will surrender and feel and be humble themselves and, and feel weak and let go of their control so that God can start bringing about change in their lives. And one note for every one of us who are here who are believers. Or for some of us who've been at church who, who, who thought that you're believers, who profess that you're believers. One of the concerns I have is that oftentimes we have we grew up at church, we 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 go to church, and yet when we say we're Christian, we are Christians, when we say we believe in Jesus, that belief did not come from a place of surrender and humility. That Jesus was not really our one and only. That we have not let go of everything else and say, Jesus, I want you and you alone to be in my life. My concern for some of us is that we have just added Jesus in. We have just added Jesus as one of the many good things that we have in our lives. So we've never really surrendered and say, Jesus, my life, here you go. Take it all. That we have not humbled ourselves enough to say that I can't make it myself. Instead, we're just saying, Jesus, I can make up to here, but I need you to make, take me to another level. But you see, true salvation, true transformation in Jesus Christ calls us to surrender it all. And I say this to some of us today is because if you have never surrendered your life fully to Jesus, and I don't mean that you will be perfect in surrender, but that you've never committed your life and say, Jesus, I don't want just me plus you, but I just want you. If you've never prayed and say, Jesus, take my whole life, just instead you just said, Jesus, come into my life and do what I want. If you have never surrendered, you've never fully humbled yourself, you have not put your trust in Jesus yet. And I encourage you. Today is the day to come before the Lord and say, Lord, I thought I knew you. I thought I believed in you, but I have not. But today, your spirit, your spirit have changed my heart. Your spirit have touched my heart. I want to let go of everything. I commit myself to you. And I want to ask that you will pray to the Lord. Don't just add Jesus to your life. Surrender your life to Jesus and, and commit to follow him. Just like our friends, our neighbors, or our enemies. Surrender and humility are the only way for us and them to experience change. And we see here Saul, in Saul's life, God initiated this change. But Saul himself responded and surrendered humility. But there's also a third component. 
to bring forth the change. The third component is that God sent help to Saul to bring the change in his life. In this story, we see three people, God, Saul, but also we see Ananias. God sent help to Saul. He bring Ananias in to change that person. Notice what it says. Now, after the division he had in being le- Saul being led to Damascus, a different person named Ananias, a follower of Jesus, also got a vision in a completely separate time. Verse 10 says, Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. At the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. And behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision of a man named Ananias come in and lay his hand on him so that he might regain his sight. I don't know if you ever look at the story and read this story and wonder why God had to go out of his way to call Ananias to show up at the same place with Saul. I mean, after all, God gave Saul the vision. Couldn't God just make Saul walk in his blindness to Damascus and then give him another vision and say, now you're healed since you're humble enough and surrender your life enough. Now you're healed, you're changed. Like, couldn't God just do that, like, in a vision? Why bother to call Ananias to show up to walk and meet with Saul? God could have done it in a second to change Saul's life. Why go through all that to bring another person to be involved? Now, I don't know why exactly, but there are some things that I know from Scripture to be true consistently throughout. One of the reasons why, one of the things I know for sure is that God loves to use people as his means to change the world. God loves to use his people to bring forth change in the world. Yes, God could have done it in a vision, but God, for whatever reason, brought Ananias into the picture and go and change Paul's life. In the same way, God could have just dropped Bible into the world and convert the whole world. And yet he sent his own son in flesh as a person, real person here on earth to bring forth change and salvation in your life and my life. God could have sent robots all over the world to change the world. And yet God brought human being, his followers. And at times it might cost them their lives. And yet God used us. Gave us the privilege to be used by him to bring forth change in people's lives. One suspicion I have is because God wants those whom he sent to experience him in a great way as well. See, God wants to use us, not because he wants to use us as a tool. He wants to use us so that we get to know this God that we believe in, this God that we trust in. Isn't it true that those who have, who, those who walk and, and be obedient to God oftentimes are the ones who, who reap the greatest benefit? It's the same way at school, the same way at work. If you help someone with, a, with, with studying, you actually learn the most for yourself. And I believe it is the same way spiritually. That God wants us to grow and mature in our knowledge of him, in our obedience to him. And so he uses us and calls us 
so that we will have an opportunity to obey him. We'll have an opportunity to follow him, opportunity to experience him. See, Ananias was no special individual. We didn't hear anything before this incident, this chapter about Ananias. And we don't hear anything after this chapter about Ananias. But I can guarantee you that Ananias' life was completely changed after this incident. After seeing what God could do with once well, this person named Saul, who, whom no one thought could ever come to know Christ. You can think of Saul or Paul as like the Osama bin Laden of our days. That no one thought could ever come to know Jesus. And yet Ananias was the one who laid his hand on this man. Pray for him. That this man, his sight was regained. And more importantly, that he get to baptize Paul. What do you think it did to his own faith? That as he saw the next person, as he encountered another next person, and that person doesn't believe in Jesus. Do you think that do you think that and then I was like, well, this person would never believe. If I get to see Saul come to know Christ, this person will be nothing to God if, to come to know Christ. You see, one of the reasons why I think God wants to use us and you bring people, use people as, as help to others, is so that we can grow. So that we get to experience God. So that we learn to obey God because every obedience comes with a price. It comes with a risk. Because in this, in this, in this story, we know that Ananias did not just raise his hand and say, yeah, God, I'm ready to go. There was an objection. There was a hesitance in Ananias' life. Look at what, verse, verse um, 13. After God gave this vision to Ananias to go show up and you would think, wow, like Ananias, you have an opportunity to bring someone to Christ. You would think that he would jump on it, but no, the little notice what it says in verse 13. And Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. See, Ananias was not dumb. Ananias had heard about Saul. In fact, probably everyone else had heard about Saul. He was the guy who was the chief persecutor of Christians. And Ananias had heard story. And Ananias had a moment, he had to make a choice, whether I need to obey God to listen to this vision that God has given to me, or am I just going to ignore, pretend that I, I, I have a nightmare? Because this person that God had told him to go save, and peel and laid his hand on was the man whom everyone knew in the community in their surrounding neighborhood that this man was against us. He, he will bind us. He will arrest us. He will kill us. There are some serious risk involved. And yes, and yet Ananias trusting in God enough that he walked, rise, and he rose and went. To meet Saul where God told him he would be. See, there's always going to be risk when we obey God. There are always going to be risk when we want to help someone to be changed. There are always going to be risk when we want to help someone to experience something good, to experience Jesus, to know Jesus. 
For Ananias, it was literally risking his life. What, what, what if Saul was just playing the game, just showing up, waiting for a Christian to come, and then he would go arrest that Christian, arrest Ananias, and put him in the jail? What if Saul wasn't really re, um, repentant, like what, what we knew after the story, looking back at the story? Is there a real risk? You see, when you pray for change in someone's life and God said, why don't you go forth and bring forth that change, help that person to change? What if that person did not appreciate you? What if that person misunderstood you? What if that person weren't even thankful to you? What if that person cuss you out? What if that person was so ungrateful that you're trying to bring change into his or her life? Badmouth you, gossip about you. You see, there's always going to be risk in obeying God and being a change agent in someone's lives. But here's the thing God calls us to be obedient to Him. See, people need change. You and I might want to see change in people's lives. We pray hard for people to change. And we see God initiate a change. We see this person might be responsive to change, to be open to change. But yet we also have a role that God perhaps call us to bring forth the change. And my question to you and my question to myself is this. Are we going to answer the same way? And the nice answer and says, here I am, Lord. Are we going to be obedient and trusting in Jesus that we're going to go forth and talk to that person, to bring change to that person, to speak truth in that person, to love that person, even that person does not reciprocate that love. That we put ourselves in a risky position. We're going to risk even our lives because we want to see change in that person. You see, there is no Saul without Ananias. Every Saul requires an Ananias in their lives. See, for Saul to be delivered, to be changed, he needed an Ananias to step out in faith and obedient. And the question is this. Rather than complaining, blaming, losing faith and saying, well, this person would never change. And bind the lies of saying, what if? God is calling you to pray for that person to respond in surrender and and, and humility. What if God is calling you to focus not how much this person can change, but how much we need to have faith to bring forth change in this person's life? Would you be an Ananias to a Saul in your life? God perhaps have initiated that already. God perhaps is doing something in that person's life. Now is our part to play. Are we willing to listen from God and say, God, what do you want me to do to bring forth that change? God, what do you need me to say in boldness to that person? What do you need me to do to serve the need to that person? What do you need me to do, God, to wash the feet of that person, even though I may be misunderstood? God, what do you need me to do to bring forth change in that person? So for every person to be changed, God must play a role. That person must play a role. 
And as the disciple of Christ, we are given a role to play. So rather than saying that person will never change, believe that person, let's trust God to do something amazing in this person's life. Let's trust God to to motivate us, to give us faith and obedience to help that person. Let's trust God, pray for God to work, do a heart surgery in that person's life so they will surrender and, and, and humble themselves to be changed by God. Perhaps you might be hearing this story, you might be thinking, well, that's good and all good because it's in the Bible. That's a long time ago. This past month, I came across this news, and I thought it was just so amazing and, and just really helped me to remember that not only God did it back in, the, in Saul and Paul's day, God did it in, 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 in the old time, in the ancient time, but God continues to be at work today. Here's a post by the Atheist Society in Kenya, posting one of his, his own former member, in fact, his own former secretary, Showing up, his name is Seth Mahiga, showing up at church one day to give his life over to Jesus. And I love this post because it was not even posted by, by this guy who, for whatever reason, got initiated change. For whatever reason, this guy realized that he needed Jesus, show up at church, hear the gospel, respond to God. It wasn't even posted by him. It was posted by the group who was supposedly to be opposing God, atheist society in Kenya. And in some ways, even they themselves cannot believe what just happened to their own secretary. Former atheist in Kenya, Secretary Seth Mahega in church today, accepting Jesus, announcing his resignation. Surreal. We see God is still in the business of changing the world. God is still in the business of changing lives. But the question that we need to ask ourselves is, is, do we trust that God will do that? Do we trust God enough to do something about this? If an atheist, a secretary in an atheist organization willing to, to surrender him, himself and resign and put their trust in God, what else God cannot do today in your life and my life? I want to give us a moment to respond to God's word today because it is good, again, to look at the story of the scripture, look at somebody else's life. I think if we are believers today, one of the greatest evidence of God's being able to change our lives should be ourselves. We today are Christians. Would have been impossible if it's just up to us. You see, God is the one who brought forth that change. I remember many Ananias in my life. Before I came to know Jesus, people were praying over me. My Sunday school teacher praying for me, parents praying for me, people who shared the truth of God with me. I have no part of it. And yet God, in his great mercy, in his grace, Bring forth a change that is not humanly possible. 